Reading from Song of Songs, chapter seven. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Babylon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in these tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. It go do goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early in the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape, grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Quinn. If you have not already, church, please meet me in Song of Songs, chapter 7. Chapter 7, type it into those devices or in your old school Bible, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, then Isaiah and Jeremiah. Uh, I had to write that on my notes because I always forget where it, <laughs> where it is if I don't have a ribbon in there. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square, and we're continuing uh, through this. Two more weeks left in this particular uh, book of the Bible. And arriving to this text, I think it's important uh, to begin with understanding that one of the most fundamental ideas or ideals of our cultural moment or beliefs is that I am my own and I belong to myself. I am my own and I belong to myself. That's what Professor Alan Noble, how he put it in his book, You Are Not Your Own, and I think he's right. How we determine our identity, our meaning, what we value primarily comes down to what we feel, what we think, what sort of wells up within us when we think about what is most valuable or what we desire to chase after. Noble explains that in the modern world, he says, meaning cannot be imposed upon us from, outs from an outside source. Instead, our experience of life is something we oppose meaning, impose meaning upon. So while we might submit to like civil laws or generally take stop signs and traffic lights as suggestions, right, to what we should do with our cars, or uh, we observe national holidays, uh, or we comply with many different social norms, determining what's most important is a matter of personal autonomy, and even human liberty is often what we think. Yet there is this hazard, if you will, about this particular ethic of what we'll just call radical autonomy. There's a hazard. And I think we all sort of know it. At Dartmouth University in 2015, uh, David Brooks sort of played on this instinct at their commencement address. And he, he said uh, that commencement speakers are supposed to give you a few minutes of completely garbage advice. He says, listen to your inner voice, be true to yourself, 
follow your passions, your future is limitless. And then, of course, there's a little light chuckle. And in his 50s, Brooks quips, my generation gives you a mountain of debt, and then we give you career derailing guidelines that will prevent you from ever paying it off. So what's he getting at? Our modern ethic of I am my own and I belong to myself is unlivable in the real world. Our idealism, our humanistic take falls flat, if you will, against the cold hard facts of student loans. Can I get an amen, right? Or against friendship or of social morality or of death. No matter what I desire for my life, death and taxes are a surety. This is what we joke about with every new generation, right? See, we thrive then, I think, in a shared story, in a social connectedness. We know we're not our own. We know we belong together. However, on the other side, many in positions of power have exploited our dependency to control and manipulate. This is especially true in the church. Historically, we as a people, as a religion, as a community, have capitalized on the importance of rules and social connection and regulation by scaring members into radical religious compliance. We've disregarded human autonomy and disregarded human dignity. For instance, since the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church has preached indulgences, and though this has taken on many different iterations, indulgences are financial payments to elicit divine favors, charity, healing, and even the easement of punishment for your dead relatives. So you give us a little bit of money, they suppose, and things will probably go better in purgatory in the afterlife for your mom, your dad, your, your relative, your cousin, your children. But the modern evangelical church, the church that we're a part of today, whether perhaps we realize it or not, uses similar fear tactics, compelling certain behaviors as it relates to our relationship with sex and money and alcohol and education and authority figures. So what do we do with all this? Radical autonomy on one end seems just as unsatisfying as radical religious compliance on the other. Is it rules or is it freedom? What are the things that give us definition and meaning and purpose? Am I my own or do I belong to others? And if so, to what degree? One way that the Bible speaks about this or really illustrates this tension is through the gift and the theme of marriage. And we've been looking at this through the Song of Songs. And today as we continue in this book, we'll see the culmination of both liberties and limits within their relationship. See, while they continue to have this sort of coming and going, this freedom, they also belong together. There's a devotion There are liberties, and there are limits, and there is ultimately this liberating boundary that they have with one another. See, boundaries that create for them meaning, identity, value, and purpose. That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about boundaries. I want to talk about how the limits and liberties of boundaries are God's gracious design for our flourishing, how they're for our good. So here's how we'll organize our time. We'll look at the design of boundaries, the distortion of boundaries, and the healing of boundaries. So as we've been going through this whole series, we'll look at what God intends, how we've messed it up, and how Jesus brings healing. So there's no surprises. It's the same movement. So let's go to God and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we get to gather around your word, that we get to, uh, with curiosity and humility, seek out the truth and beauty of Jesus together. And so I pray for myself. I pray for my friends. We don't just come as brains. We come as bodies, as souls, as hearts. And so would you bring us not just new information, not just aha moments, but would you bring us healing? Would you bring us comfort? Would you bring us peace? 
Would you hold us accountable to your word, but would you also free us from the bondage of wrong thinking and, and living unto ourselves? We desire that, Father, because we know that, that that ultimately, as your word teaches us, is where real life, true life is what Jesus called it, where it comes. And so would you help us? Would you help me to be clear and responsible with your word? And would you help us as your people to respond with joy and gratitude as we hear your word proclaimed over us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Song of Songs is a poem. We've tried to clearly communicate this over and over again and not extract from a poem what perhaps we might expect from a letter or an epistle. Um, and we should keep that in mind today in particular because uh, poems don't deliver principles in doctrinal form. So it takes a different approach with this genre to understand the truth that is being communicated from it. Sometimes we got to zoom out. We got to zoom out and behold the entire poem, if you will. And I think as we come to chapter 7, it's good to do just that. And one of the things that we see when we back off of this poem and not just get down to the nitty-gritty like I know you love to do, like what's that word, how many times is it used in the Bible, and what suffix and root comes from that, it's good. But we zoom back and we see there's been seeking and there's been finding. There's been shame and there's been fear. There's been limits and there's been waiting. But now what we find here in chapter 7 is that the waiting is over that the shame is gone. There's liberty and there's joy. And in his most descriptive sonnet yet, the man speaks again about his wife's body and how she makes him feel. Look at Song of Songs, verse, chapter 7, verse 1. He says, How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master's hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon, but the, by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit Oh, may your breasts be like the clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved gliding over teeth and lips. Now, we have been saying this throughout the song. You should not copy and paste this in your own marriage. It likely will get lost in translation. So what we are trying to garner from this poem is the heart behind it the meaning behind it, not by making this sort of allegorical of some spiritual relationship, but saying what truth is revealed within their affection, what truth is revealed to us about their love or through their love. See, the woman is dancing. We see this from the previous chapter, chapter 6, verse 13. That's why the man, unlike every other description, moves from her feet upward as opposed from her eyes downward or her hair downward. He lists at least 13 features that bring him delight and as before, it's not objectification. This isn't, as we've explored, detaching her body from her soul and enjoying him for his own sake. It's a mutuality. It's a togetherness. We know this because the woman reciprocates with delight. Look at verse, the second half of verse 9 on into 10. She says, It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's and my desire is for him. So for the third time, 
The woman speaks about belonging at the level of her soul. She responds to what seems to be purely physical with a deeply emotive and soul-level affection for her beloved. They've not just been given their bodies to one another, they've given themselves, they've given their souls, their whole beings. Limits have given way to liberties. Abiding by certain boundaries has welcomed them into this new set of boundaries. See, while they have had limits and they've been waiting, it's all been for their good. That's the design of boundaries. Boundaries are designed for our good. Specifically, boundaries bring us definition, safety, and flourishing. And this is what we'll explore a bit today. And we've seen it since the very beginning. See, the poetry of the creation narrative crystallizes this reality. When God makes everything, he makes everything with restrictions and with freedoms. The story, if you're familiar with it, is organized within the boundaries of six days, Not only so, but God creates context within those days. He creates the heavens, the skies, the sea, and the earth on days two and three. And then from day three, four, and five, he fills those environments with life. And the life that fills these forms finds definition, safety, and flourishing only within those boundaries. Birds thrive in the sky, but they die in the water. Fish thrive in the water, but they die outside of it. So it shouldn't surprise us. And it shouldn't have surprised Adam and Eve then that when God created them, Adam and Eve, he gave them liberties and limits too. He places them within certain boundaries for their good, for their safety, so that they would understand themselves and so that they would thrive and flourish. We'll hang out a bit in Genesis today because I think it'll be deeply helpful for us. So turn to Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and meet me there. We'll flow through that a bit before we get back to Song of Songs. So, when we come into this context, when we come into the story of Genesis, moving from poetry in the first couple of chapters on into a much more historical record from thereafter, we see a number of different boundaries that God sets in place. And the first boundary that he gives is physical. God gives physical boundaries. God creates people with bodies, which is a divining boundary that I think we often take for granted. I know where I end and you begin because my body stops at a certain point and yours starts. He also made us male and female, giving us further definition of our nature and our relationship with one another. Check out Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So Adam is even made from the dust. Eve is made from Adam's rib. They're created. We're created. Physical creations, creatures. Our flesh gives us definition, knowing where we end, where someone else begins, knowing a little bit more about what it means to be us. And safety and flourishing happens when we operate within that physical boundary, that physical form that we have. Not only so, but God sets environmental boundaries. He put them in a garden. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So the garden was Adam and Eve's home, and it had four rivers and plentiful vegetation, we're told. Move back up to Genesis 1, verse 29 and 30. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seeds in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has 
the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And all God's vegetarians said amen, right? Every green plant given to God's people within the context of their environmental home of Eden. They had everything they needed. Everything they needed in their home to be safe and to flourish. And to this day, don't we find deep meaning in the place that we were born, the place that we were raised, the place we called home? This is why we get agitated when from someone from Skokie says they're from Chicago. You're not from Chicago. Skokie's dope, but it's not Chicago. This is important. God gives also relational boundaries. See, while the couple shared what's called the creation mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion, they're also tasked with distinct relational limits and liberties with one another and with God. We see this in uh, verse 28 in chapter 1. And as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, particularly Adam, or rather Eve, is called Adam's helper, his ezer in the Hebrew. Author Kathy Keller explains that to help someone is to make up what is lacking in him with your strength. She goes on to say that male and female are two pieces of a puzzle that fit together because they are not exactly alike nor randomly different, but they are differentiated such that together they create a complete whole. In other words, their restrictions, when embraced in concert, bring freedom and meaning and flourishing. Lastly, we see a moral boundary in the creation account. God gives moral boundaries. While the Garden of Eden was their home, that didn't mean they could do with it whatever they wanted. See, they were cultivators, not creators. They were stewards, not owners. God actually told them, you shall eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This is a moral boundary, and God could not have been more explicit. Submitting to his word brings life, and if you don't, you die. Now, some of us may object to the entire notion of boundaries, particularly as it relates to gender and morality. Why give any restrictions at all? What makes the boundaries of the Christian scriptures any more noble than those of any other culture or other religion? Well, let's keep in mind, restrictions are not themselves virtuous. Only the right ones are. Restrictions in and of themselves are not virtuous. Only the right ones are. In his book, The Reason for God, Pastor Tim Keller addresses this idea in a chapter that responds to the claim that Christianity is a straitjacket. He says, constraints liberate us only when they fit with the reality of our nature and capacities. Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, the liberating restrictions. See, like the fish of the sea and the birds of the air that God made to live exclusively in the sea and the air, respectively, we'll be crushed if we don't surrender to our own liberating boundaries. One way to determine, then, whether or not these are good or right for us is to observe what happens when we don't abide by them, what happens when we break them or when we're, they're distorted. That's where we turn next. Remember, the bride in the song continues to warn her girlfriends throughout this poem, don't stir up or awaken love until it's time. Why is she doing that? She's identifying a boundary. She's inviting them to find goodness and joy and flourishing in the right boundary, the right restriction that is fitting for them. And in the uh, book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, who most agree wrote Song of Songs, says in Ecclesiastes 8, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. 
and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. And the Proverbs are resplendent, constantly warning us to not do what's wise in our own eyes, just what we think makes sense. In other words, appropriate boundaries are designed for our good, but the story that we see unfolding in the Bible, and really in all of life, is that we've distorted good boundaries. We've distorted good boundaries. Specifically, we've broken the boundaries laid out in the creation narrative. Each begins, each of these distortions begins by questioning God's voice, by questioning his character. I would submit to you that every distortion starts there. When the serpent slithers along the garden bed, he asks uh, a question. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, if you're still hanging out in Genesis. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other of the beasts of the fields that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, the evil one's question is a question about what? God's word. What did he say? And let's be honest, there's a huge difference between asking God a question and questioning God. There's a huge difference. We should be a curious people, asking God, asking each other questions all the time. We should be the most curious bunch on the planet, right? But questioning God is different. The first comes from humility and curiosity, maybe even suffering. The second comes from hubris and manipulation, and this is what the snake is doing. In essence, the snake is the modern person who says, I am my own and I belong to myself. No person or higher power can impose physical, moral, and relational restrictions on me. See, the modern distortion is to question limits. Is that what God really said? Is that, you, you know, like when you're in group or even having a conversation? With, I don't know. That doesn't feel right. Is that what God really said? I think we can do what we want here. We hate limits, don't we? I do. You know how many times a camera on Logan Avenue Boulevard is like taking a picture because I was going over the speed limit and all of a sudden we've racked up hundreds of dollars of speeding tickets because there's a limit. I hate that. Just let me do what I want. I hate it. Limits spoil true freedom is what we suppose. Our story as a nation, in fact, is grounded in this idea of liberation, isn't it? We, we freed ourselves from the British government's tyranny to build a life, to define democracy and society for ourselves. And this national ethos has infiltrated our souls. If you don't believe me, read Brene Brown. She's always talking about this. Brene Brown demonstrates this in her book, Braving the Wilderness. She says, true belonging is the spiritual practice of believing in and belonging to yourself so deeply that you can share your most authentic self with the world. So many of us suppose that a life without the tyranny of any outside meaning or universal meaning is the only true free life. Only when I define myself for myself am I my authentic self. But remember, limits aren't evil. It's the wrong limits we should avoid. The question shouldn't be who is giving me limits or who is saying these things about me or do I like the boundaries they're placing on my life. Instead, we should ask, will these limits lead to my true identity? Will these limits, are they appropriate? Do they lead to my safety and my flourishing? You see, the notion of what we call radical autonomy is a worldview, if we are honest, of extreme privilege, of extreme privilege. Not only does this distortion put too much pressure on the individual to know and define themselves for themselves, but it puts too much pressure on the poor to liberate themselves. 
Professor Susan Selner Wright explains that the drive to achieve a utopia populated by radically autonomous individuals whose choices are simply unconstrained is a collision course, is on a collision course rather, with reality. And the first to die in the train ruck are the poorest of the poor. If I am my own and I belong to myself, only the powerful are liberated, which therefore is an illusion of freedom. How do we know this? Because in the late 1960s, activist Fannie Lou Hammer challenged the core tenets of the women's liberation movement. At the founding meeting of the National Women's Political Caucus in D.C., Hammer famously said, nobody's free until what? Everybody's free. She understood that freedom is an illusion if it only works for some people. That's the first distortion, a disregard for appropriate limits places destructive limits on ourselves and on others. Now, if the snake is the modern person, Eve is the moralistic person. Satan's question leads Eve to distort God's voice too. Look at Eve's response in verse 3, if you're still in Genesis 3. She said, God said, so she responds to the serpent, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, God never said don't touch it. This is interesting. You know, things that make you say, hmm, this is where our curiosity should peak. Wait, where did she get that? He just said, don't eat it. In other words, what's Eve doing? She is adding more restriction, more limits, more constriction on God's word than he even put there. She's like a person who says, yes, God sets boundaries, laws, and rules, and they are so much for our good, I'm going to invent new rules to make sure I don't break those ones, right? The moral distortion is not questioning limits, it's questioning liberty. So the, the, the modern person is like, limits are bad. The moralistic or religious person is like, liberty is dangerous, freedom is dangerous. This led the Pharisees in Jesus' day, a devout sect of Jewish scholars, to invent extra laws. Think about this. This makes no sense to most of us because it's hard enough to follow what we think is plain in the scriptures. They made up some more. There are 613 laws in the Old Testament, and they're like, let's add, let's add a few thousand more. That just seems too easy. They built what's called, what we're called, uh, or what today rather is being called fence laws. They added laws not simply so that they wouldn't break those, but so they wouldn't even get close Popularly, they're called fence laws. Now, while at first blush, this might seem, wow, these dudes are religious. They're super holy. They're super righteous. At first blush, it seems really amazing. But upon further consideration, it's legalistic and even harmful. Jesus himself condemned this in Matthew chapter 23 when he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So just like Eve, the Pharisees added to God's word. And when we add to God's word, add boundaries to his word, we miss the freedom he intends for us to enjoy. This shows up in a lot of destructive ways in the church today. We still build fences, don't we? Because of God's heart for perhaps for something like sexual morality, some have made fences around the female body. Many of you have helped me to see this. Perhaps most infamously, something called the Billy Graham rule was instituted by 
the uh, world-renowned evangelist, and he says in some of his writings that he would not travel, meet, or eat alone with a woman other than his wife. That's a fence law. That's a fence law. So why his motivations may be pure, it's nevertheless done harm. It's cast a woman's body as a sexual threat and moral freedom as dangerous. See, when we enact the same inflexibility in recent history. We've done this in spoken and unspoken ways. We've made made-up restrictions about divorce, about sexual attraction, about dating, about drinking, about dancing, about music, and so much more, all out of fear. We may not think we're adding to God's Word, but nevertheless, distorting God's gift of freedom The Apostle Paul put it about as plainly as you can in Galatians chapter 5. He says, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. The yoke of slavery he's referring to in context is unnecessary laws. In this case, it was circumcision. Many of us have grown up and perhaps even rejected the faith for a lot of things that Jesus rejected too. Extra laws. Laws that make no sense. Laws that God never said. When God says don't eat, religion has a great way of saying also don't touch it just in case. That also betrays his heart. That's the second distortion. A disregard for liberty also does damage. Now, you may wonder, well, which distortion am I susceptible to? Which, which am I? Am I the moralist or the modernist? Let me give you some really, I don't know, maybe bad news. You're probably both. This is why you live in Chicago and are trying your best to follow Jesus. There's a little bit of both in you, right? You live in a prevailing city, a culturally diverse city, and yet you want to follow and aspire to follow Jesus. And so you probably oscillate between these two extremes. So what's most probably critical for us to consider is in each of these distortions is how does it bring devastation or, or that it brings devastation. See, if you know the story, you know that Adam and Eve eat and touch the forbidden fruit. So they go along with the serpent's hot take on freedom, but they also betray their own made-up moral boundaries. This always happens. By the way, you track with a religious person long enough, they're breaking their own rules. They just become the exception to it. And as as a professional Protestant, I've been there. I do that, and I need accountability in ways that we have to be very careful about that. We need each other. See, as a result, humanity then betrays the design of God's good boundaries that he has put in place. Destruction ensues. If we track with the story of Adam and Eve, we find out that their physical boundaries are broken. And how do we see this? They start covering their bodies in shame. Their environmental boundaries are broken. They have to leave the garden. Their relational boundaries are broken. At the end of Genesis 3, it says that she's going to oppose Adam, and Adam is going to oppose her and be against one another. Instead of helping each other, they're going to be against one another. And their moral boundaries are broken too. They're separated from God in a spiritual death. You see, because of sinful distortions of God's good boundaries, humanity is no longer safe, no longer known, and no longer flourishing. This is where the story ends in Genesis chapter 3. We need healing. Back in the Song of Songs, the couple points us in the right direction, in a harmony between limits and liberties, highlighting our healing. So if you're still in Genesis, flip back to Song of Songs, chapter 7. Verse 11 through 13. It says, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, 
whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom, there I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. So after his ravishing description of his bride, and after she confesses her continued and constant holistic devotion for her beloved, they go back to the garden. In particular, it's a blossoming garden. And in the song, the country in general and the garden in particular, these are places of lovemaking. She says literally, there I will give you my lovemaking. There I will give you my lovemaking, which I have laid up for you. In other words, the fullest expression of love has been laid up. It's been restricted for her beloved for their knowing, for their safety, for their flourishing. That's the ultimate and healing boundary. Not new rules, not new freedom, it's love. Her love was reserved for the boundaries of their marriage, and it's those same constrictions that bring them such freedom in their union. What the scriptures are teaching us here and what constantly is put on repeat for us is that love is the ultimate good boundary. Love, in keeping with our nature, is both freeing and restrictive. Tim Keller again says that we only become ourselves in love, and yet healthy love relationships involve mutual and unselfish service and a mutual loss of independence. This is why love is so hard. Is because when we enter into a relationship, almost always we think about what we're going to get from it, not what we're going to give to it. And we realize in order to cultivate a healthy relationship, whether it's a friendship or whether it's a parenting relationship or whether it is a romantic relationship, it is always both, isn't it? A healthy, loving relationship is always one of receiving and giving. It's always one of limits and liberties. It's always one of living and dying. It's always both. This is why in Ephesians chapter 5, as we've explored a lot, The wife submits to her husband, and the husband dies for his wife. And if ever only one of those are happening, you have abuse and brokenness. It is only when the wife is lovingly submitting to her husband, and her husband is daily waking up and saying, you're dying to yourself today, that's when it works. All of a sudden, you're woken up. You wake up to this fresh reality of freedom and bondage. As with every passage in the song, The couple's love points us to a greater love, the love of God. After all, it's not married love that is our ultimate and lasting liberty and binding joy. It's divine love. Now, we have to ask, why is this love of God? Why is the love of the God of the Bible any different? Because you go to many different cultures, many different religious traditions, many different modern ethics base love as a supreme good. So what is it about the God of the Bible? Why is his love unique? In the gospel account of Matthew, Jesus invites those who are weary, who are tired from the world's oppressive freedoms and powerless rules to find a new boundary in his love. Perhaps you've heard this passage before, Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. He says, come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So life with God isn't freedom from restrictions. 
nor is it a new set of laws to follow. Notice the tension in what Jesus is saying. Life with God is easy and light, but it's still a yoke and it still is a burden. But we lay down our crushing burdens, the things that make us tired, and we take on a burden with Jesus. He gets in it with us. We take on this liberating boundary of Christ's love. That's why it's healing. Because Jesus' love actually tears down artificial walls that religion has put up. Jesus' love actually rebuilds good boundaries torn down by our pride. Jesus' love then frees us and it restricts us. This led the Apostle Paul to tell the church in Corinth, for the love of Christ, what? Controls us. It binds us up because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What's Paul saying? Paul says we're controlled, we're seized, we're compelled, we're bound up by Christ's love. We are not our own. We belong to Christ. But in that belonging, in that giving up our agency, we don't lose our identity, we find it. Why? Because Christ is the one who was completely unbound and he willingly bound himself to you and me out of love. That's what makes it different. He didn't live for himself. He came for us. He died for us. He drew near to us. The unlimited God became a limited human being so that we who were bound in death and sin could be freed and bound to him. A kind of bondage that liberates from a kind of bondage that kills. You see, God's love is the only boundary that fits your design. Not religion, not secularism, not whatever new thing we'll come up with tomorrow. It is Him. Why? Because His love restores and heals every distortion that we have caused, that this broken world has caused. See, His love restores our physical boundaries. Romans 8 tells us that one day you'll have a new body that is no longer bound by sin, but has been realigned, real, uh, has been made new through resurrection. His love restores our environmental boundaries. See, in the age to come, Jesus will bring heaven and earth together, and he says we're going to live in a city, and there's a river and trees and bushes growing in the middle of that city. It's a, it's a restored garden. We go back to the garden. Praise God. His love restores our relational boundaries, too. Jesus tears down, Ephesians 2 tells us, the dividing walls of hostility between men and women, between races, between political parties, between the religions, between the secular age, between the suburbs and the city. He tears them all down and brings together one family. His love restores our moral boundaries. See, when humans failed the test in the garden, ate the forbidden fruit, Christ passed the test in the garden and said to his Father, not my will but yours be done. See, the reason Jesus' love is different is because Jesus' love has integrity. He has never asked us once to do something he has not already accomplished. So when he invites us to take his yoke upon him, you know in the ancient world there was not known any particular yoke that only had one hole for one neck had two. So when Jesus says, get in it, he's saying, get in it with me. I'm in this yoke too. I'm bound in this flesh with you. That's why his is the only liberating boundary we could ever have. See, in the liberating boundary of God's love, that's where we're fully known, that's where we're fully safe, and that's where we flourish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you We thank you for this wonderful reminder 
that in our fear you bring peace, in our weariness you bring rest, and in our wounds you bring healing. And so, Father, we ask for that. Would you bring healing? Many of us bear the scars of these boundaries being broken or perhaps being wounded because someone else broke them, broke them for us, perhaps against our will. Whether the environment we grew up in, relationship that we've had, we we need your healing. And so in our bodies and our souls and our hearts, our minds, in the wholeness of what it means to be us individually and as a people, we pray that you would help us to see the beautiful limits and liberties of your love. Would you free us and protect us from making up rules that you never said? And would you give us humility and surrender to obey you out of love according to your will and according to your word? We desire this because we desire to be a whole people that knows one another as God in Christ has known us, that is safe within the love of your care and the love of your family, that flourishes according to your good, pleasing, and perfect will. So may it be so we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.